Our scripture reading this morning comes from uh, Matthew 17. As I mentioned at the beginning this Lent, we've been uh, listening to Jesus, specifically to a phrase that he says to his disciples again and again. And these words are for us here today as well. Those words are, do not be afraid. This is such a special text we're looking at in the Bible. Um, In some ways, after studying and reading it, I came to see that this is one of the pinnacles of Scripture, one of the absolute high points where we get so clearly the voice of God describing his relationship to Jesus Christ, the Son, and the special place that this person has in the world and in our lives. So as we uh, read these words, I just pray that you lift up your hearts to hear them. May the Spirit uh, apply them to your lives today. Matthew 17, first eight verses. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, this is such a big moment in the biblical story. Who Jesus really is, is being revealed. And the special place that Jesus has in God's heart, and the special place that he ought to have in ours as well, is spelled out clearly by God the Father. This is my son, he says, whom I love. Listen to him. The way Matthew sets up the scene clues us in that big things are happening. Look at the first line. It says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now that might not seem like an earth-shattering line, but let me tell you that in the Bible story, um, we need to notice a few things about this. First, the use of six days, and then second, the fact that they're going up a mountain. Everything important in the Bible, it seems, takes place in six days and on mountains. In six days, God created the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day, he rested. On this, uh, for six days, Moses waited on the mountain, waiting for God to speak, and on the seventh day, he spoke. The law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Elijah had a life-changing encounter with the living God on Mount Horeb. These are key moments in God's mission and ministry, and now here with Jesus, the stage is being set for another big revelation. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him up on a high mountain. 
Now, when Jesus and this small group of travelers reach the top, uh, a strange and fascinating thing happens. Suddenly, Jesus was transfigured before them. His face uh, shined like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Transfigured. The Greek word is metamorphu, uh, from which we get the word metamorphosis. It's not so, so much that Jesus was being changed. It's not like he was replaced with a, with a new shiny Jesus. No, it's, that's not it at all. He's still the same man. But what's happening is that what is within is being revealed outwardly. The veil, as it were, is being pulled back, and the true identity of the Son of God is shining forth. Light is a symbol, a sign of the holy in the Bible. Those who come from God, like the angels, are ablaze with it. In the wilderness, God appeared before his people as a pillar of fire, and the psalmist says of God that he wraps himself in light. Light is pure. Light enables us to see. The Bible says that God is light and that in him there is no darkness at all. The fact that Jesus shines here is significant. It tells us that Jesus has come from God, and it's also suggestive of something more, something that will take the church uh, 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 quite a long time to sort out and find language for, actually. In the Old Testament, Moses shone like the sun after an encounter with God and the, uh, the reflected glory of God was so strong on his face that he had to veil himself because people couldn't look at him. But here it's important to see that Jesus is not reflecting glory. The light is within him, shining out. Moses and Elijah were set aside to lead and to teach, but they both had earthly origins, and the glory that God gave them was reflected glory. But Jesus doesn't have an earthly father. He's son of Mary and son of God. And the voice from heaven makes that clear. This is my son, the voice from the cloud declares, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. This is my son, God says. Moses and Elijah were servants of God, but this man before you, this man Jesus, is my own precious flesh and blood. To be a son or daughter of someone is to share in that person's essence. Humans give birth to humans. Your parents' DNA is your DNA. And the Bible tells us that Jesus was born of Mary and born of God. So he has Mary's facial features, but also God's DNA. The New Testament writers will struggle to put this into language, but later generations of Christians confronted with challenges concerning the true identity of Jesus, will enshrine this teaching into creed, that Jesus is God. Together they will confess, and we confess with them using the Nicene Creed. Here are the words. And we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him, all things were made. 
Now, this technical language from the fourth century might seem like an exercise in theoretical Christianity, but let me tell you that understanding the true identity of Jesus is super important for our life and faith. In fact, it's not an overreach to say that the single most important thing that God the Father wants us to know is the true identity of his beloved Son. Twice in the Gospels, God rends the heavens and says out loud, This is my Son. Why does God do this? Well, he wants us to know that Jesus is the best he has, the one who fully represents him, the radiance of his glory. You know, God is invisible. God is mysterious. It's hard for us to know God the Father because we can't sit or touch or, you know, we can't see or touch or or sit beside him. But the Bible tells us that if we have seen and sat beside Jesus Christ, then we have seen and sat beside God himself. Jesus reveals the full character and the heart of God. And this means a a few very important and practical things for our life and faith, I think. Firstly, it means that there is no other way to know the true God apart from Jesus Christ. I think it's a, a little, we live in such interesting times, it seems to me. On the one hand, church attendance is in serious decline, but at the same time that that is happening, an interest in spirituality is on a sharp uh, increase, incline. Meditation apps are being downloaded at record amounts. Um, spiritual retreats of all kinds are being offered everywhere, and people are hungry, hungry for these retreats. But you know what? According, according to the Bible, there is only one way to satisfy our deep and enduring spiritual hunger, and that is to feast on Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. If someone is experimenting with connecting with God, but the God they are connecting with doesn't look and sound like Jesus Christ, then they are not connecting with the one who made the heavens and the earth. Only Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, as the writer of Hebrews says. Similarly, the rule of Jesus can also help us test and discern the spirits. If someone says that they've received a word or a revelation from God, we can hold that word up in the light of Christ to see if it corresponds to the teaching and the witness of Jesus. The Spirit of God always agrees with the Son of God. If a teaching or a movement does not lead us to greater worship of Jesus Christ or witness to Christ's way, then it is not of God. So you see all these practical ways that having a a secure knowledge of Christ's identity can help us discern truth from falsehood. And it's also an important principle to keep in mind when reading and applying the Bible too. Are we reading it with Jesus at the center? You know, after his resurrection, Jesus walked on the road um, to Emmaus with two downtrodden traveling uh, companions. They had thought that Jesus was their guy. They had hoped that he would change the fortunes of Israel, but their hopes were dashed when they watched Jesus die on the cross. 
Jesus listened to these travelers as he walked beside them, but at a certain point he interjected. And then Luke tells us that beginning with Moses and the prophets, so Moses and Elijah, Jesus retold the whole story of the Bible and showed them how every bit of it pointed to the coming, the death, and the resurrection of God's Son, Jesus. Jesus is God's best word, the center of God's story. Every book of the Bible leans his direction. Moses and Elijah lean and point his direction. And if our reading of this book does not lean the Jesus way, then we can know with certainty that our reading is incorrect. So getting the identity of Jesus right is essential for understanding God, understanding God's word, and understanding what true spirituality looks like in God's world. This is practical stuff. And that leads us to the final and most practical application of all, the one that God the Father declares loud and clear. If Jesus is God's Son, God's authorized presence, then it is the voice of Jesus that is to be the authoritative voice in God's family. This is my son, my precious son. Listen to him. Listen. Open your hearts to his teaching. Let him transform your thinking and your acting. Listen to him. Listen. There's uh, different ways of listening, right? There's hearing sounds and syllables with your ears. That's good. That's the first part of listening. But true listening moves from hearing to action. You know, when I instruct my children to do their morning chores, brush their teeth, get changed, make their bed, I don't want them to just hear the words I'm saying. I want them to live it out, to, to do as I have said, to hear and obey. This, it seems to me, is absolutely essential for understanding what God is saying here when he says, listen to him. It's not just about hearing, but hearing and doing. And this is also absolutely essential, it seems to me, for our life together as Christ's community. At root, the church is fundamentally a listening community. We gather to sit at Jesus' feet. And I think this is actually really important to keep in mind, especially during this time of COVID, where so much that we have held dear as a community has been turned over and put on hold, and we have to wait to see, you know, when things reopen, to kickstart some ministries. It's a time in, you know, where we can't do what we used to do, but it's in a time where we can ask the important question, what is essential? What are the essential things that we as a community need to do? And it strikes me that gathering to sit at Jesus' feet, to listen to his teaching, this is at the heart of what it means for us to be Christ's family and church. This won't change we still need to gather to put ourselves at Jesus' feet. And what does he tell us? What are the words? What are the commands of God? 
Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, do not worry about your life or about your body, what you will eat or wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? The pagans run after these things, but not so with you. Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. We are the community that gathers to hear these words, to reflect on them together, and then to disperse out into the world, to put them into practice. And if Brittany and I are doing our job properly as preachers and teachers, then we will be entirely unoriginal, entirely. I will simply be passing on to you and helping you understand and implement the precious words of God's precious Son. And isn't it, isn't it interesting how God cuts Peter off mid, uh, you know, Peter's got some good ideas, at least he thinks they're good ideas. So he's, hey, Jesus, this is, this is big. We should, you know, we should set up some tents. We should, we should seize this moment and, and see, you know, let's hit pause and gather some troops and we'll see where, see where this goes. But the text says that while Peter was still speaking, the voice from heaven interrupted him, said, this is my son. Um, this is actually the second time uh, that Peter has been interrupted uh, by God in the last week. A week earlier, Peter was with Jesus, and Jesus was talking about how he had to suffer and die. And Peter said, whoa, 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 Jesus. And he took Jesus aside and said, you know, the Messiah doesn't suffer and die. The Messiah rules to that, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. And the very next time Peter opens his voice, you know, starts speaking, the voice from heaven interrupts him as, as if to say, you know, just quiet, quiet, Peter. Listen to me. Listen to Jesus. God the Father won't even let Peter finish his pitch. In time, Peter will learn that the true, true church leadership doesn't pretend to know better than Jesus. In time, he will learn to listen. This is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples hear the voice of God coming out of the, crowd, out of the cloud, they are absolutely terrified. But did you know, did you see Jesus' first word, the first word that they are to listen to, that he speaks to them? Here it is. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came to them and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. I love this moment. I love that the first act of the transfigured Jesus is to calmly bend and stoop to terrified disciples, to touch them, to invite them up, and to say to them, do not be afraid. We half expect Jesus to look at Peter and sarcastically say, you know, I told you to knock it off a week ago, Peter. I'm glad that you're scared. You should be scared. You're a bad disciple. You know, expect, half expect him to just 
put Peter in his place. But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he touches Peter on the shoulder and says, Get up. Do not be afraid. This moment really captures the heart of the gospel, if you think about it. I was reading someone named Frederick Dale Bruner this week, and he makes this point in a profound way. He says this, Everything in that little seventh verse, and in some ways this little grab and lift at the end of the transfiguration, may be one of the most, or the most important points in the story. For Jesus shines not just to shine, not to, just to impress, not even in the final analysis just to make us obedient or trembling, but especially to help us up, to put us on our feet, to enable us to breathe again so that we can be obedient to his word, can listen to him. Jesus touches before he speaks. He lifts before he commissions. He dies on the cross to rescue and redeem terrified, trembling, and cowardly disciples. And the first thing he says to them after his resurrection, after they've all abandoned him, is, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. If we are to truly put into practice God's command to listen to Jesus Christ, then do not be afraid are the first words that God's community needs to internalize and practice. They tell us that our performance as disciples is not determinative of our relationship with God. They remind us that God is a God who comes to us to gently touch us, to lift us up, and through um, the death and resurrection of his son to make us holy and whole again. We don't have to be afraid on this journey of bumbling around as Jesus' disciples. Jesus is a patient teacher. Jesus won't let us go. Do not be afraid, he says. Get up, follow me. Paul spells, Paul spells out this foundational truth in his letter to the Romans when he says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Get up, follow me. There is no condemnation. Do not be afraid. I don't know where you stand today, in relation to the transfigured Jesus. But I hope and pray that you both experience the immensity of his identity and the gentleness of his touch. Do not be afraid. Rise up. And together, let's give Jesus Christ, God's Son, our full attention. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we want to hear your voice. We want to be the kind of community that um, doesn't just come up with good ideas of what we think you would like, but actually hits pause to be still, to sit at your feet, and to listen. And then when we receive, we want to be the kind of community that rises up and puts into practice what we have heard. So I pray, Father, that you teach us to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd and that you give us the courage to obediently follow where he takes us. And I pray too, Lord, on days where we stumble or fall or get caught up in our own ideas that go nowhere, that you would gently come to us 
invite us to get up again, to tell us to not be afraid. Please continue to grow us, Lord, deeper and deeper into discipleship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.